Good afternoon, morning, evening, everyone. To our Babbel listeners from around the world, I'm Megan Thomas, and I'm thrilled to be babbling with award-winning visual artist, Chris Sol. Chris is an emerging artist practicing in Johannesburg using unconventional found objects, as you can see if you're watching the video, such as toothpicks and bottle caps to offer us an interpretation of the world that we live in. Uh, he's designed a Lady Dior bag, which was featured in the Lady Dior art collaboration. And I must admit, I never would have thought a bag covered in toothpicks would look as very cool as it does. At risk now of making Chris seem slightly less cool, we met age 16 at a competitive high school poetry slam. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Hi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> to see you again I mean I've seen you since then but that was basically the coolest time we've ever met up other than today <laughs> wow I actually you completely jogged my memory there I'd almost forgotten about that but you're right I think <laughs> yeah we were 16 how young and and fresh the world seemed back then <laughs> yeah I mean we were doing competitive poetry I'm I think we were clearly doing it right <laughs> definitely definitely in the cool kid crew <laughs> yeah killing um, it in high school <laughs> we are sitting with some very cool artwork behind us, which is, of course, yours. Sorry to the listeners of the podcast. You're going to have to tune in to tomorrow's episode, which um, will be the visual element. We're sitting in front of some of Chris's art. How, where are we, Chris? And tell me a little bit about the room we're in. Sure. So I'm in Cape Town. Um, I'm here installing a show with my gallery, uh, What If the World? And yeah, we we're sitting actually in Tiny Empire, which is um, owned by my gallery director. And yeah, he's got a super cool setup, little soundproofed like boardroom, and uh, brought one of my works out just to give it a bit of sparkle in the background. Yeah, it's a good time to be talking because now I'm busy processing everything that's happening with my show and in a little bit of reflect reflective space. And I think that yeah, hopefully we I make sense and we have a good chat. Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to get onto your current show and stuff very soon, but I actually want to wind it right back before that. Yes. And pick your brains a little bit about where this all started. You're at this incredible point in your career, and I'm kind of interested to know kind of the first time you knew that art was not only something you wanted to do, but something that you thought you could make a career out of. Mm. I think that happened quite late for me. I mean, some some artists say like they knew ever since they were a kid that they wanted to be an artist. And I can look back on my life and kind of see a, a trajectory that kind of led me in this direction of like little moments that I piece together now with the hindsight that I have that kind of, you know, show me how I've ended up where I am. But I think the decision to pursue fine art really kind of fully formed itself in the year that I, I spent abroad after finishing high school. So I, I moved to the UK and I was working in Surrey, at a little prep school called Amesbury. And I was like, just helping out coaching kids, you know, after school and, you know, doing reading with kids in class and being an assistant teacher type vibe. And one of the things I started getting into there was, you know, helping in the art department a little bit. And I think it was like an, accumula an accumulation of a lot of different factors. Firstly, I had done, art through my whole schooling career and I was like good at art in the sense of like you could draw well and that was really a measure of being good at art in high school and then I got to the UK and I befriended this art teacher and I think she really like in a very gentle way kind of like started introducing me into contemporary art and especially what that meant in the recent like 
history of Britain, like kind of, you know, centered around the Turner Prize and the artists that had kind of like done their thing and used that as a springboard and the young British artists and whatnot. And it was fascinating for me to find out that a lot of, I'd say almost 80% of them had studied one thing and then had kind of transitioned through meeting someone or taking an odd job or helping someone out. And there were kind of like multiple different sidesteps and whatnot until suddenly they arrived at, at like their niche and they found their kind of space. And so that kind of like also changed my perspective on, um, on my thinking around like what I have to be doing with my life. Cause it took a lot of pressure off, you know, realizing that all these people had done one thing that led to another. And then they finally kind of found their way. It kind of like gave me the freedom to say, well, you'll find your way in the end. The, the, the sort of starting point doesn't really matter that much. And so, you know, then for me, it was a question of like, well, what can I do that gives me the most freedom? And I think that you're kind of maybe in a very naive way, perhaps, but I think the idea of, of art really represented freedom for me. And yeah, I think it's just, it's, I already knew at that early stage that, you know, art was a nonlinear career path that forced one to wear many different types of hats. So I thought it could really cater to my, my personality and, you know, the different facets of myself that are interested in so many different things at once. And so far, I'm really glad that it has. Yeah, well, so so am I, because it means I get to talk to you about it. <laughs> um, so you then did your fine arts degree at WIT. Um, mm-hmm. Is that right? I'm yes. interested to hear, so once you'd kind of made that decision and then gone into this degree, whether the degree is structured in a way to give you the kind of freedom that a lot of artists feel like they need and whether you think that kind of structure of a degree is helpful. Great question. You can uh, say no. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, not at all. Not at all in hindsight. Um, I think that, I mean, I was, I was advised to go to WITS by some, um, some people who I kind of knew a little bit in the art world. They thought that, that particular school would, would give me um, a particular grounding, you know, conceptually that they saw um, as important. Um, and I'm very glad I did go. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's, it's on the one hand, um, this was a, a very difficult place to to find one's creative legs. I think that like early stage of like uh, of like carving a path creatively is so um, it's so vulnerable, and so much like protection needs to be given. It's like a plant. If you if you're you know trampling you know on the same path every day, nothing's going to grow there. And I think that. But it didn't necessarily give the space for that. But I think I also knew that going and there was something like that a lot of people had told me that this is, you know, and, and universities and institutions that are molded in that particular way are like kind of engineered to break you down as an individual and then give you kind of, I don't know, a platform to build yourself back up again. And I don't know if I agree with that philosophy, but one thing that, so there's a few things, but definitely gave me from an autistic standpoint the ability to articulate myself about my work. There was a lot of there was a lot of talking. There was a lot of like critical theory and writing about one's practice. A lot of research, and I think that with the trajectory that contemporary art is headed in, that that's a very positive thing. And I, I'm very glad that I did that because talking about one's work and engaging the public is something that like any successful artist has to be able to navigate. However, I think that you know I only developed an artistic language and a genuine studio practice once I left. But the frustration of being in an institution like this where I didn't feel like my 
my early uncertain vulnerable creativity was being like protected and allowed to grow also meant that there was a lot of frustration that built up. And I was fortunate that that frustration built because then I was allowed to channel it in a very productive way. So I took all the work that I've made, you know, as part of assignments for the university or that was about to be critiqued by different lecturers. And instead of like um, allowing that work just to like be critiqued for four hours, you know, be hammered and smashed and like taken apart and then take it back to my studio and allow it to die there. I instead took that work and brought it out into the world and I started submitting it to shows and just getting the ball rolling. And I think the dissatisfaction then led into like, you know, you know, a a real sense of having to take, um, take action. And I'm very glad that I did because, you know, getting that ball rolling early has allowed me to be where I am now. I mean, it kind of sounds a little like, um, when you have to do your driving theory test, like no one learns how to drive until they get on the road. Yeah. <laughs> so you have oh, to that's like, a great analogy. Get, all, yeah. get all the checks and things done. You have to get the certificate and get through. And then you actually, you learn it by nearly crashing and or going freewheeling. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. tell me a bit more about, uh, I don't know, you actually choose which you think is more relevant to start with, whether we talk about the Dior bags or your current exhibition. Uh, Dior bags. Let's start there. Complete surprise. Caught me out the blue. Not something I imagined I'd be doing at this stage of my career or even like any stage of my career for many years. Um, And really an honor to be a part of it. And the artists that are included in this year's, um, the fifth season of the Lady Dior Art Project are all like artists that I've looked up to and and really admire. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I, yeah, I was... I had some work up in London during the London Art Fair week, like Freeze and Head and whatnot. And um, I had two large pieces with um, with Southern Guild at the Pad show that I think was quite close to Mayfair, just outside uh, the Saatchi Gallery. And uh, they were featured by Forbes. Um, both works were featured in the top five works of that sh- of that fair, and uh, the response to them was incredible. And then suddenly, you know, I get this. Um, this this email saying that you know Dior's you know invited me to collaborate on this project. Would I like to submit some ideas and play with it? And at this stage, you know, I I, I had no hopes of this actually happening. I thought it was just like a one of those you know um, you know you cast your net wide and you see what happens, but you don't get your hopes up. So we sent through a couple of ideas based on existing artworks because that's kind of the platform that this this collaboration has facilitated in the past where artists kind of bring their own aesthetic to what Dior's done. And yeah, with zero expectations, suddenly it materialized. And we began the process in of actually making the bags. So with the initial proposal, which was done in la- last year, November. Um, so, no, sorry, not last year, November, 20. 19 November because 2020 was kind of non-existent so 2019 November mm-hmm. and then two of the representatives from the DO team flew out to Cape Town and we met up in February 2020 with like they came with two massive suitcases of like little goodies and um you know kind of different parts of the bags like like 50 different handles and uh little samples of what they put together based on my designs little ideas and that experience was really eye-opening for me because we kind of just played around for three or four hours, just combining different things, making aesthetic choices, making formal choices, realizing that there were like practical elements you had to consider when um, making a bag like weights, for example. 
you know, you can't have like a 15 kilogram bag that someone's meant to actually carry around. Whereas with my artworks, the only questions I need to kind of resolve is like, will this thing hang on the wall or will it tear the entire wall down? And once I've figured that out, it's kind of like, well, anything goes. Um, but with the bag, you know, the, the questions were kind of different. But I found that, yeah, I found that it was an incredibly exciting opportunity. And yeah, I think especially that initial design process where we were physically playing with different components of the bag uh, really, like, you know, reminded me of a child playing with Lego. And I used to do that all the time when I was a kid. And and just the kind of freedom of that gesture, not too concerned about what this means, but really like just trusting your intuition, running with things, bottle tops on on a deal bag or like changing the O in the in a bottle top um in the in the deal charm into a bottle top opener. Like, you know, I felt like those are really kind of playful, quirky gestures. Um that if I thought too hard about it, I probably wouldn't have done. So I really like the kind of spontaneity of the project. Um and it's great exposure. Like for someone my age, at my stage in the career, you know, it's it's almost unheard of. So I'm just a very, very happy boy <laughs> and um, very excited by everything. Yeah, well, congratulations. It really is such an incredible accomplishment. But the more I read about the kind of stuff that you've been doing, it does seem like it's perfectly, perfectly, what's the word I want? Ironic that you're covering <laughs> your bag in toothpicks, you know, it's, and yeah. bottle tops. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's a really amazing kind of commentary on this weird world that we live in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, well, you know, when I, when I started working with the toothpicks, one of the first things that I noticed was my inability to control the medium because there's so many little pieces and they all want to fall different ways and they want to do their own thing. And, you know, when I stepped back from that chaos, I realized that at a distance, suddenly they transformed into something completely different, whether that for some people represents like fur or animal skins, or whether it suggests, you know, some sort of organic growth like coral or like, you know, viruses, or I don't know, the, the references seem to be endless with that. But, you know, in that case, it, it really made sense if I'm using this material that's so overlooked, but you know, in the ways that I work with it, it transforms into this like signifier of luxury in the case of like a fur coat. Then, you know, that kind of dialogue, bringing that into, into the space of high-end luxury, um, which a lady your bag occupies, I thought was a really, a really um, considered gesture and, you know, and went just beyond the aesthetic and started to like kind of comment on maybe, you know, things like the opulence of that kind of industry and, you know, I guess the, the the consumerism of the fashion industry and that kind of high turnover of that world. And, you know, I think that also, you know, in very subtle ways, you know, you mentioned irony, but, you know, you think of like a high-end event where someone would wear a Lady Dior bag and would be drinking champagne there or, or really fancy wine, not necessarily beer. So there's this kind of like playfulness of putting a beer opener on a, on a bag. And yeah. I when I was interviewed by Dior about like the decision behind that, I actually, you know, kind of had this, um, this flashback memory to this one scene in this film by the name of Malena, where Monica Bellucci kind of like is stunningly dressed. She goes into this old like Italian town and she walks through the town square and takes a seat down and like, like everyone's just like spellbound by her. She takes out a cigarette and before she can even light it, like 15 men are just like leaning in trying to light her cigarette. And I thought that this this thing of putting a bottle top opener on a Dior bag was very exciting 
because it kind of flipped that association. Like maybe it's the woman who's walking up to a man struggling to open this beer and opens it with her like high end Lady Dior bag. So, you know, there was a little bit of, a little bit of fun to be had there. And I think that, you know, I do, I do think deeply about my work and I do, you know, do a lot of research, both my material and actual, actually like through literature and, and academic writing and, and critical theory and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I, I'm playing with bottle tops and toothpicks. And there has to become a point where you, you step back and you don't take yourself too seriously. I think I just try to take that attitude into this collaboration because, you know, if I, if I thought about it too hard, I'd probably get stage fright dealing with something like um, Christian Dior has been around for like 75 years. And here I haven't even had a professional career for five years. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was a necessary playful gesture to navigate the potential overbearing seriousness of the moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think you've really nailed it. So is that, is that part of the motivation? I suppose not taking yourself too seriously using found objects is that is that why you started using toothpicks and bottle tops in the first place? I don't think there was a single reason, but if, you know, looking back, I definitely think that that's one of the reasons. However, one of the the more like dominant reasons was mainly that I was just an art student, didn't have you know necessarily a lot of resources to be spending on like art materials in the traditional sense of like you know I couldn't just go cast a bronze sculpture or like carve a marble statue or like even oil paints are ridiculously art priced so. You know, there was this real sense of um, of needing to find a way of making work that didn't that was even feasible on a practical financial level. And I think one of the things that started happening as as a student early on, as I started to kind of broaden my understanding of the art world, was you know I started seeing that contemporary art was really marked. You know, sure there was a dialogue with the history of art and and a lot of what was happening. You know, throughout you know sort of that trajectory but there was a real sense of like contemporary art being rooted in the moment like there's something about the here and now about contemporary art and as I started to to sort of um consider what to do the you know this idea of using materials that form part of the social fabric of our time really does allow you to say something about the here and now so each material that I use has a number of different starting points firstly I've noticed that there's a consistent like interaction with my physical body with both, with all the materials that I use. So with the bottle top, for example, if we were having a beer now and having this conversation, I'd be fiddling with the cap in my hand as like a nervous tick or just something that I do. And one of the things I would do is bend the bottle top in half and, and bending it in half and then twirling it in my, between my thumb and my finger, like kind of, you know, I kept, you know, touching this thing. And one day I looked at it and it reminded me of a cowrie shell with the, the way the teeth of the bottle top bend inwards. And that was something that I would always pick up on the beach with my family in the Eastern Cape, you know, on holidays. And, and my dad would always have competitions with us as a family to pick up them. And, you know, and I had these little associations personally. And then, you know, you dig into it a bit more and you find out that like Paris shells are this pre-colonial form of currency. And then this kind of very like a significant cultural symbol in many, in many cultures around the world. So, you know, the, this material suddenly takes on a whole richness to it. And then, you know, with the bottle top again, it's also about, you know, this constant observation of the material in your everyday setting. So I'm walking through Bramfontein on my way to Witz and I keep seeing bottle tops strewn in the pavement, lying outside of Shabin's. And there was this one day where this little glint of gold caught my eye in the pavement. And I, you know, I, I went up to it with kind of this like half 
you know, hope of expectation, I don't know, being a ring or like a coin or I don't know what I was hoping for. But, you know, it turned out to be a, a bottle top lying in the, in, in the dust in the pavement that caught the sun. And, you know, these, these moments and then, you know, after, you know, entering into this kind of like accumulation of the material through collecting it from shabines and taverns and making friends with bartenders, um, then you start to notice more intricacies like for example about 60 to 70 percent of bottle tops across brands are printed in the color gold and then about 20 to 30 percent are printed in silver and the remaining like 10 to 5 percent are printed in multiple other different colors and i found that absolutely fascinating that gold and silver were the prime were the predominant you know colors that these bottle tops were printed in and that i think immediately says something about our um the, the association of value to particular colors you know, and then so suddenly now, you know, thinking about Johannesburg's mining history in relation to this production of bottle tops in the color gold, then suddenly, you know, allowed me to ask the question, well, if Johannesburg is the city of gold, nicknamed Igoli, and the only gold you see on the streets of Johannesburg are bottle tops. So, you know, I, I kind of found that as I dove deeper into a material, the world started opening up in terms of what I was able to do, the questions I was able to pose. And the material kind of gives back in that way. And similarly with toothpicks, it's something that I fiddle with. It's something that I touch. It's something that I'd notice, little moments here and there. Um, and for example, I dismissed toothpicks for two or three years before I decided to do anything with them. I took a photo of them one day in a box and then saved that photo in a folder on my phone and forgot about it for three years and then returned to it later. Concrete, I'm always walking through the city, touching different concrete surfaces. Some are smooth, some are rough. So these, you know, I find that there's this bodily interaction with the material as a starting point and from there it's like the the kind of research process just opens everything up to me yeah well yeah it sounds like a child childhood spent playing with things has turned into an, um, a career <laughs> playing with things not in a bad way at all obviously no I love that I love <laughs> it's that. an incredible um, um a very good observation journey. probably a stupid question but I'm going to ask it anyway how Go for it. do you transport agilian toothpicks and bottle tops <laughs> between cities and countries? <laughs> oh, great. Great question. Roughly uh, agilian. That's how many I assume. Roughly agilian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, spot on. Spot on. One or two off, but spot on. It's funny. I actually joke with people because I often have accountants or, um, you know, people in the finance world who end up coming and wanting to buy stuff or like, you know, curious about the work. And one of the questions that they seem to always ask is like, how many toothpicks did you use in this piece? Or how many bottle tops did you use in this piece? And I, I kind of have just started to reply with, well, if you can guess the exact number, I'll let you have it for free. <laughs> um, and the joke is obviously that I don't know the exact number. So, you know, <laughs> good luck trying to guess it. Um, but on a practice, I mean, that just comes down to like kind of engaging with, with the material. So, you know, um, with the bottle tops, for example, we punch a hole through the center of each one. Uh, well, it depends on how I work with them because I work with them in different ways. But like for the piece that's sitting behind me here um, where I create these long coils of, of the bottle top and create these spirals or these like hanging forms, there we punch a hole through each one. And we've started using electric fencing cable because it's flexible, but it doesn't fray when you kind of like thread each bottle top on. And this electric fencing cable is obviously a very prevalent um, feature in South Africa and you kind of, but it's almost an invisibly present feature. It's like everywhere, but nowhere, because you don't acknowledge it. So that's an interesting thing that I'll start to tease out in my work a little bit more, this kind of like hidden 
component that underlies the structure of a lot of these sorts of works is something that I think has rich potential to speak to a, a number of other issues that I want to touch on. But with the toothpicks, for example, you know, it's also about, okay, cool, they're wood or like bamboo or birch. So, you know, then I need to find a glue that's non-acidic and, and can work with, with wood. And, you know, ideally I'd want something with a long drying time so that, you know, I have lots of time to work with it to get it into the shapes that I want it in because this thing is like crazy hard to control. So eventually I settled on this like polyurethane sealant that's really rubbery and is very flexible. So, yeah, I mean, we just kind of put them in crates and package them really well and then send them off. Um, and part of the process, like especially last year where I was literally um, for the for the most part of the year outside of South Africa's very intense level five lockdown, I was mainly just like working from the studio on a very day-to-day basis. I was like a nine to five artist really. And that time, that consistency really allowed me the opportunity to dig deep into thinking about how can I make these things better so that they transport better, so that they hang better, so that people can handle them without being afraid of that. But yeah, fortunately, some artists make equally as strange things as I do. And um, there's lots of people in the art world with experience of how to deal with that. So I'm not alone in my troubles. (laughs) Yeah. And so um when you open next you say next Saturday, um how yes. will people be able to kind of socially distance explore? Sure. Well, I think for this show especially, I've kind of occupied the entire gallery. I'm not sure in terms of total square footage what it is, but I'm gonna estimate maybe like 150 to 250. Uh horrible estimation, but roughly like it's quite a large space. Yeah. And we really have um we've got We've got three rooms that are really expansive and I've only got six works in total on display. So the works are very spread out. People have the book slots to come view the work or come to different walkabouts. There's two sessions for the public, a couple of other private things happening um, before and around that time. So, you know, I think it's just what it is these days. We have to, you know, we have to account for COVID measures, but a lot of time and effort has been put into documenting the work both through photography um as well as like putting a little documentary film together mm. so i'm i'm really hoping that we can um you know do a good job of capturing the the energy of the show through those mediums and then sharing it broadly because you know even for some people who are, are in cape town and would love to come see the show i think you know everyone's just apprehensive and doing what you can and you know taking as much caution as possible so you know that kind of ability to share things online is really becoming more and more crucial. Yeah. And another possibly stupid question from someone who clearly doesn't know. No stupid questions. The, the great. Are, are they all for sale, all your pieces? Not always. Um, sometimes. It's always a discussion. I think in the beginning of my career, I felt that I had to make everything for sale because I was perhaps in some way feeling indebted to whoever's exhibition space it was, mm. especially if it was in a commercial sense, because you, you then are very aware that, you know, this this organization or this person is paying rent and they're covering these costs and, you know, this and this and this and this. But I think as I've gone on in my career, I've learned that the value of art is not always, or the value of an artwork is not always the value that one can ascribe to it in that moment monetarily. So there are some works that I've deeply regretted selling in the past and and I've had to live with that regret. 
and fortunately, you know, as an artist, you can return to themes and, and works. And I've never remade something, but I've often re reapproached something. And, and then, and then if I'm especially satisfied, I keep that with the works on show. Now they're all works that I've lived with. And some of them still have lived with and been working with, but over the past six months. So I've seen them, I've looked at them, I've considered them every day. I've made peace with them. And so I, the works that are on show, I'm happy to let go. But even in this show, there is like a work, there's two works actually that I've said to the gallery, look, I want to show these, but they're not for sale. And and that's just something in terms of like confidence that I've managed to build up in, you know, in myself, realizing that I don't have to make everything for sale. Um, and some works I think maybe are are very important for me to keep in relation to my practice so that, you know, maybe there are works that I keep and, you know, show in different contexts or return to the studio so that they can inspire new works. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, you didn't make me feel stupid for asking that question. <laughs> Zero <laughs> stupidity. In that. No. And you know, it's funny, like artists, I, I think not enough artists have those sorts of conversations with each other. And there's been a lot of, I remember in 2018, I, I went to a residency in Dakar and Around that time, I kind of kept writing this little like note to myself in, in journals and notebooks that said, artists give permission. Artists give each other permission. Because I remember seeing this artist, um, Walid Rad, do a, an, a, an artist talk where his whole artist talk was a performance, but he did it in the form of a lecture. But half of it was false and half of it was true. But there was almost no way to differentiate what was true and what was false because he wove it all together so beautifully and suddenly I realized like, oh my word, I could have fun with the very format of an artist presentation. I don't have to like do the typical stand behind the podium, click through a slideshow thing. I could genuinely do whatever I wanted with that. And other artists, you know, have completely blown open my, my categories of, of what's possible, both um, creatively and professionally. So, you know, I think that the more, you know, these conversations are had, the more this knowledge is shared. Yeah, the the better it's going to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially, and it's something we're really trying to do on this platform. So far, you're going to be our first non-author. We're very excited about Yeah, I'm very excited too. Um, and we're obviously wanting to branch out into all of the arts because we think that it's so important for it to kind of all be not not linked. They're obviously all very different in their yeah. own ways, but to realize that sure. there's so many creative processes that are similar and how often a creative process can be kind of projected onto life because that is mm. really what all art and creation is. Mm. the reflection of what everyone's doing and feeling and experiencing. So Yeah, I agree. And I think that also, you know, the, the distance that one has maybe to an artistic discipline that's not their own can be super beneficial. So, you know, for example, um, if I'm listening to a talk by a writer or a playwright or a film writer or whatever, I often like come away with so much more than I would from an artist's talk because there's like a distance to my own profession and I'm not necessarily comparing things in terms of like material and form and, and whatnot. But like since they're coming at maybe similar concerns from a different angle and in a different genre, I'm suddenly able to like, you know, reconceptualize them in new terms. So that kind of interdisciplinary conversation is very beneficial. So yeah, good on you. Well, and thank you for coming on. We're very, very pleased to have had you. If you're listening today, it's a Thursday. And if you're watching, it's a Friday. So make sure, make sure you tune in for both audience. 
thank you, Chris, for coming on it, again. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and hear more about something that I've seen you doing for years, but actually I've never had a proper conversation with you about. So it's, um, it's been really good. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing. We're loving it. We're all following you. Yeah, well, great. Fingers thank crossed. You, Chris. Um, and thank, thank you, you Meg. Um, for tuning in, everyone. Bye.